Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. As we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. We're really excited to have you with us tonight. We have an amazing guest and it's oh my, oh my, oh my all over the place. But before we bring Mark and Varla in, I want to thank Ken Quiet Hawk for that amazing introduction. You can find him and his wife at nativestorytellers.com. They are amazing people and they have a gift and it's, it's uh the, the stories they tell are just taking us back to our roots, and everybody should experience that from time to time. So without further ado, I'm going to pull Mark on here because he's got a fabulous show on tonight. Hi, Mark. Hey, Barbara. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Yeah. Hey. Uh, did you have a good weekend? Had a great weekend. And it it's you know, we're expecting more snow, but aside from that it was it's been great here and happily this the weather hasn't been horrendous, so um you know, there's no ma- there's no great shoveling or anything like that going on. So it's been a, it's it's been good always round. Okay. And I'm still waiting for the crocuses to pop up. <laughs> you have ways to go for that, I'm afraid. Yeah. yeah. Hey did and I uh, just want to do a you know, quick rant before we bring in our super terrific guest. Uh, did, did you uh, hear about the results from the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation uh, test of citizenship? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. It's, uh, the uh, it's, uh, uh, In the, you know, Local paper, but you know, I guess uh, you know the press release went out. Uh, I don't know if it appeared in your paper, but you know, there's like uh, you know this senior age group did very well on the history tests. Uh, those 45 and under performed extremely poorly. Uh, you know, there's one of the uh, lines from the article. You know, from our local writer who summarized the results, he, he wrote, he wrote uh, 
thinkers at this foundation made an excellent point about why so many people don't know important things about history and citizenship. The teaching of American history has traditionally focused on memorization, dates, names, and events. This poll shows that these methods of learning history have not been effective, the foundation stated in a news release. So I think uh, Nightlight needs to be part of the school's curriculum. (laughs) I would agree with you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mothman and uh, the Chinese in St. Louis, uh, you know, we're uh, covering a little bit of everything, but, uh, you know, people keep subscribing to the YouTube channel. So I, I guess they're agreeing more with us than the, um, these citizenship tests. But anyhow, uh, you know, we're close to approaching the six month anniversary of nightlight part two. So yeah. we, uh, you know, might be somewhere around, uh, halfway to Halloween. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really do math, uh, but you know we can s- celebrate the full moon tonight, anyways. But um, absolutely, you know, <laughs> we're so um, you know we're just getting to our first uh, haunting ghosts creepy show, and you know this is <laughs> going to be an important show because um, uh, you know we do have a couple more ghost shows booked for March. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so. To get this new theme for our show kicked off right, we have the Queen of Freakitude with us. Uh, Varla Ventura is an international folklore scholar and has been researching ghosts and paranormal activities in San Francisco. And now in the northern Midwest... Uh, she is the author of Paranormal Parlor, Ghost Seances, and Tales of True Hauntings. My favorite, Banshees, Werewolves, Vampires, and Other Creatures of the Night. Um, other Fairies, Pukas, and Changelings, and Among the Mermaids. Uh, so you know, we're going to be touching on you know, like four at least four of her books tonight. So, yeah, I just want to welcome Varla. How are you? Oh, thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. Hello, Mark. Hello, Barbara. I'm happy, so happy to be here with you on this cold, snowy supermoon night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, you know, we're very glad you're here and yeah, it's. I think you're going to be laying the foundations for the other shows we have, um, you know, coming up next month. So it's, you know, I really appreciate that. So, um, kind of get ease our way into all kinds of creepy stuff for this full moon. Okay, so um, before. Barla thralls us with her acumen, to quote Dr. Lecter, um, about Parisian catacombs, haunted hotels, creepy mermaid stories, 
<clears throat> in my favorite Claremont. Um, we need we need to hear about this one shocking uh, paranormal haunting case. It is at Laura Ingalls Wilder's house. Okay, uh, what's up with that? Is like, did did Nellie's ghost move in? What's going on there? <laughs> no, Nellie's still there torturing her with a, her golden curls. <laughs> um, so uh, it's actually the Ingalls homestead, and I believe it is the one that's in Dismet. And um, it's the it's the one that um, the I believe Ma and Pa are both buried in this uh, you know on this property. And interestingly enough, you can you can now go there and camp out on the Ingalls property, and the, you know, it's privately owned, but they rent covered wagons and things like that that you can sleep in, or you can just go kind of wander around the property. Um, but it's, so it's a, a bunch of the family is buried in, uh, on this site, um, including Ma and Pa, Mary, Carrie, Grace, but pretty much everyone but Laura and Almanzo who were buried elsewhere, and, and they were buried in Missouri. And it is supposed to be pretty common to, you know, hear strange things on that property, um, to see spirits, and a lot uh, most commonly are lights sort of strange um, little orbs and uh, lights and specters and things like that. Uh, so I, I, that was uh, a story that I sort of discovered after moving to the prairie, moving to the Midwest and looking into some of the local hauntings. And um, actually, I stumbled upon that reading something about Laura Ingalls Wilder's life. So I wasn't necessarily looking to see if there was uh, haunting in that area. I just happened to be reading something about her and then, you know, fell down the rabbit hole of trying to track where the homestead was and could you go there and found out you could camp there. And then that led me to um, a number of different accounts of people, you know, having these uh, paranormal experiences. I mean, I I personally, you know, what what I imagine is that you would hear Pa's fiddle. That's what I imagine. You would just hear like the sound of you know one of the songs just on the distance. You'd mm-hmm. wake up and leap out of your out of your covered wagon and um, see, <laughs> see what you could see. <laughs> I mean, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna paint the romantic tale, we're we're gonna go all the way. We're gonna have Pa's fiddle playing in the background and. Um, but no, a number of people have reported sightings, and there is a, a Ingalls Cemetery on the property. Okay, yeah, that case study is intriguing. I, yeah, it's um, uh, okay. It's really different from. You know, let's just say the uh, Parisian catacombs that you know, Jeff told you uh, about. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. it, it, it's, you know, that's one of the interesting things about, uh, you know, these ghost stories. You, you know, you ha- you know that, 
that one caught me by surprise. And then you had the sample of, uh, was it the Mary Lake School for Girls? It's, you know, one, one of those kind of, uh, both of them are cases where uh, it doesn't seem like any, anything unusual happened there. Uh, you know, is it just they're uh, you know wanting to be uh, alive, keep keeping them at these uh, locations? Like the school for girls seemed like you know, it was kind of a uh, normal uh, turn of the century Victorian type school, and not nothing unusual happened there. I just wonder why something is, you know, people are hearing pause fiddle or, you know, something like that. Well, I, one thing I often think of in terms of haunting uh, is that we don't, So you don't know, you you might know someone really well. You you might have a best Mm -hmm. friend or a neighbor that you're very close with or a relative, but you don't actually, and you know a lot of the inner workings of their life, but you don't actually know what is happening in their life 24 hours a day. So sometimes I think of haunting as like there's no... There's no noted thing in history. There was no, you know, recorded suicide on this site. There was no... Um, you know, known, uh, you know, accident or something that might have what we would think of and, and what we often read about in the best of horror stories, like the trigger mm-hmm. event that caused this haunting. Now, while I do think that there's a connection between uh, trauma and um, haunting or people, you know, experiencing, having paranormal experiences, there can be a connection between that. I, I kind of think of, of it in a way that you know, the, the, those are just the things we we don't know about. But of all the things you think of, the inner workings of, uh, you know, the day day in, day out, take the girls' school, for example. So mm-hmm. we don't have any records of people saying, oh, there was torture here, or, you know, I was really depressed, or I was really sad, or I – I wanted to stay here and my parents maybe leave or any, any of these kinds of things. Um, But I also think that we don't know necessarily why places are haunted. We like to speculate that it has something to do with people not being able to move on or let go. But we also have experiences uh, where it's something that's, it's a protective spirit or it might just be happenstance. And it could be something that moves around and there's a lot of different places, but you just happen to be in that place when you pick up um, what it is. So we have, it's just such a vast, you know, there's a lot of variety. So I guess I think, you know, some places are certainly hotbeds, just like we have ley lines and places Mm -hmm. that have more magical energy. We're going to have, some places that might have an increase in hauntings, but anyone, and I'm sure you can attest to this yourself, it's very hard to walk into a situation and say, Mary, I'm going to see a ghost here. That's what's going to happen today. I'm going to sit here until I see a ghost. It just doesn't always work that way. It has a lot more to do with time and place and, you know, kind of to your path thing with 
this other message, whether it's from a ghost, an entity, um, you know, a memory of a house, uh, what, whatever it is. And we don't really know, right? Like we don't really know if it's like the haunted mansion in Disneyland where the ghosts are all just waltzing about and we can only <laughs> see them as we go by for a glimpse, but they're just doing their same thing on repeat. We don't know if it's that all the time around us and we only see it sometimes or if there are just moments when both kind of worlds collide and it's like, you know, there's suddenly a peephole that you can look through. And there's obviously a, uh, you know, a lot of debate about that and, and you know, volumes of of literature and, um, you know, nonfiction, just people writing about their experiences and their thoughts and philosophy on, on these kinds of things. But the probably the most intriguing thing about it is that we don't know, and that is why we keep looking, because we yeah, know I- there's something, but we don't know what it is, right? Right. I, I, I just I, I I don't have an explanation either. It's you know, like I said it, it yeah, that you know, little case study you presented uh, uh, really caught me by surprise. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't have an explanation for it. I I you know, uh, uh, ghost isn't my uh primary uh area of expertise. I, I, I think it's interesting. I just don't know a whole lot about it. I, I just wanted to you know, contrast that that example well, in, in, in the Mary Lake uh, Girls School with, with, with some of the other ones we'll get into uh, because, you know, those are maybe you know, like the haunted hotels and uh, hospitals is more probably uh, – a d- definitive study that most people could relate to. I, I, I just wonder more about the good times and times uh, and why people might uh, just be stuck in a loop that they're uh, where so, so many nice things happened. I, I don't know. I just, I just want to throw that out. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, I, I think, well, I guess my point um, was sort of that, you know, maybe we don't know all the things that took place. We we only have a, a p- small portion of, you know, our history written down. And mm-hmm. so much of it is lost with um, generations dying or stories not being retold. And so we don't know, you know, maybe maybe there was trauma on that land maybe there was some kind of um other history to it that we just don't know about and so that could also be a reason that it's a place that the veil is thin and these uh ghosts can all dance about i think that's definitely uh worth you know i mean that's worth contemplating for sure oh yeah yeah uh you 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 are doing an excellent job of getting us to think about things like that. And, you know, we could segue into an autobiographical tale uh, in the early stages of uh, Paranormal uh, Parlor where um, 
you know, you, you have this uh, toothbrush story. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, what's well, yeah. the curious what's case of a haunted toothbrush? That's what I like to call mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was. Uh, so I had been living in a place in. Uh, I'd been living in this sort of attic apartment in an old Victorian in San Francisco, and I had been living there for a number of years. Um, I think when that story took place, I had already been in that place 10 or 15 years. Anyone who's from San Francisco understands this. What There was a certain point when you just couldn't move. You didn't move, and um, if you if you ever wanted to and you missed your chance, you just you had to stay in whatever place you had because the rents went up so quickly uh, that unless your salary went up along with it, which of course if you're an artist or a writer, it did not. Uh, so so it, it was fine. I loved it. It was a creaky old haunted kind of you know beautiful Victorian um, in the Haight Ashbury neighborhood in San Francisco. So lots of history there. Wow. Just a lot of mm-hmm. just a, a, there's just a lot going on there um, for better or for worse. So I was in this apartment and I had, I had actually kind of <clears throat> had uh, an extra room open up in the apartment and I had my nieces and my, my, my sister and my mom came down with my two nieces and my nephew and they were all pretty little then. I think my nephew, he's the oldest, so he was maybe 10 or 11, three little kids. And I didn't have children of my own at that point. And so it was really kind of the first, I think they were the first group of kids to be in that apartment overnight since I had been living there. They had all come to stay, but I actually, so I was kind of in the front apartment, which was this small place. And then the back of the house opened up, and I moved into that. Uh, and in that, there was an extra room, and that's the room that the, that uh, my niece was staying in that night. And so what had happened is the kids that um, I hadn't had, I had had quite a few experiences in that front, in the front room. At one point, this was all one huge flat, one big, beautiful flat. But by the time, you know, I lived there, it was divided up. So I had had a, a bunch of experiences when I lived in the front flat, like uh, uh, things pressing down on my bed and, um, you know, strange noises at night. And, you know, of course, always when you're alone, these things happen. It taps in the in the bathroom, some of which you can chalk up to it being an old Victorian in a noisy neighborhood, and some of which you just can't quite um, explain away. So I was in the back apartment, and I had just moved there. So now I had more space, and I said, why don't you guys come down and stay for a few days, and we'll do some San Francisco stuff with the kids. So we put the kids up in, in uh, one of the bedrooms, and they they had um, these little electric toothbrushes and, you know, very diligently, cutely brushing their teeth as they were supposed to, and then they set, they lined their little toothbrushes up on, on my sink in the bathroom. And then – you know, time passed, evening passes, everybody settled down for bed, and um, it's about, I guess, three in the morning, and I hear this noise, I hear this buzzing noise, and I think, what is that? Why is there a buzzing noise? It's my first thought was going to wake the kids up or something, and then I hear it stop. I was like, okay, I can drift back to sleep. I hear it again, and I can hear that my niece has gotten up, and then it stops. And then um, a little while later, it started again. 
and then I hear, so then at that point I get up and my niece is coming back from the kitchen, which is at the other end of the house. And by then, you know, her mom and um, grandma were all, were all up kind of trying to figure out what's going on. Now it's probably five or six in the morning, I think, or it hadn't quite gotten light yet. And I was like, what's happening? And she said, well, my toothbrush kept going off. My electric toothbrush kept going off, and I, I got up twice and turned it off. Such a brave girl, not afraid at all. It was a weird toothbrush going off in the night. And um, the third time, I just got tired of it, so I brought it into the other room, and I just put it on the windowsill. So I, even if it went off again, I wouldn't hear it. So she just stuck it in the other room. So we thought, well, that's kind of a very strange occurrence that that happened multiple times since I've asked my sister has ever happened before is the battery low you know so she takes it home it doesn't do it at all once they get home not not again it doesn't need to replace the battery for you know a good year on that thing or however long you know it's just it's kind of a what the heck how what happened there and I always have tended to believe children when they tell me that things or experience things because I as a child would experience or sense things and I had my mom and um, some of her you know witchy friends they, they always just went with it they never made me feel like I was um, making things up even if it was the leprechaun I saw down by the creek you know it was like oh it was like oh no there's no no it's like oh okay yeah cool what do they look like so Fast forward maybe another two or three months, and other things start happening in that same room. And we decide that we're going to turn that room into uh, – so then, then it turns out that I am expecting my son, which, of course, I didn't know he was a son at the time. So we okay, we're having a baby. I, okay, I get, get some people to come over and help me kind of move some stuff around. And this room needs to be repainted. But in the process, um, we pull back some of the paper. Totally probably shouldn't be doing this, you know, lead paint exposure in pregnancy and all that stuff. But we do it anyway. And when we pull it back, we find this beautiful piece of, like a 1920s, 1930s print circus wallpaper. And I think it was a nursery. I think it was a child's room at one time. And so from that point on and going forward, as I brought my baby home and lived in the house a little more, and I actually was writing, I think I was writing the Banshee book right around this time, um, more and more activities started taking place. Um, I saw things, I saw things hovering above the crib. I heard toys going off in the other room, a lot of different, I always felt that the paranormal activity kicked up a notch once there were children around, which led me to think that it could be the ghost of a child or um, my mom swore that she felt the presence of a woman who was more like a child minder, like a nanny or something like that. So it was always watching the children. Um, and it all kind of started with that haunted toothbrush. Like I said, I'd had some experiences in the front flat and a few things had happened that, you know, I kind of shrugged off even, you know, even those of us who are supernaturalists don't believe everything that happens to us. Right. So I shrugged a few things off, and then after that, um, things really, I kind of started documenting them a little more. And then, um, as you pointed out, Mark, in the um, my latest book, Paranormal Parlor, I actually um, put in a lot of my own experiences 
kind of starting with those uh, things that were happening around the kids, and then uh, as time pro- as as the as I wrote in the book, I realized depending on what chapter I was working on and what story someone had shared with me that, um, you know, I would kind of sprinkle in my own experiences, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it did all kind of start with, the with those, those that the toothbrush, the kids, they were, they were a trigger. So now my niece and I, we call it the curious case of the haunted toothbrush. <laughs> it, 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 do you, Feel like you know you, you mentioned some of your family. Does the um, uh, do you feel like the uh, ability to sense uh, a paranormal presence uh, does uh, run in families, or is it more like a you know, mother and daughter type? thing what, what do you think of that subject are some people more susceptible to other than others uh, I, I do think that it's often um, passed down from generation to generation I do think that mm-hmm. even even without the nurture aspect of it there you know you'll have people who later in life their moms will admit to them that they also had this experience in that house that they never wanted hmm. to say anything because they didn't want to scare the kid or, or something okay. like that. But I, I do think it's very, um, very common to find out that a family member or to have a fa- to know that you have a family member. Now I don't think everyone can do it and I don't think everyone in a family necessarily um, is open to it, but I also think you don't always have to be open to it for it to happen. Sometimes it just happens, and that is part of you know what the Irish would call the second sight, right? That's what allows you to see hmm. fairies at night and um, you know sort of read the the warning signs from the mermaids and all these kinds of things. It all kind of blends together. So I do think I do think there is some nurture to it in that. For myself, I, whatever innate abilities I had were nurtured from a young age instead of being, you know, I wasn't made to sit up straight in a church pew and told that you know, it was all impossible. I was, you know, pointed in the direction of, you know, go and lose a dream or you know, things like that. So I definitely was lucky in that I didn't um, – I, I had sort of an education, a sort of an occult education at a young age. Um, but I do think that that's something that can be inherited. And in fact, that's sort of, if you, I mean, if you don't want to segue just quickly into banshees, I understand, but it's, it's totally the whole deal with Irish banshees is that they, who are, for anyone who doesn't know exactly what a banshee is, it's a warning basically kind of a a wailing woman that is used as a warning. The sound or the uh, seeing a banshee can indicate grave illness or death, usually of a family member. And it was believed that the banshees and the ability to see the banshees were, and, and that's an area that's up for debate, is it the ability to see them or did the banshees actually follow the family? As some accounts say that the banshees mm. 
were attached to original, you know, some of the original king clans of Ireland and that, you know, everyone sort of descended and certain castles are known to have certain ghosts and that these would attach themselves to families where traditionally the family would stay generation after generation after generation in the same place or the same property or castle or estate. Um, but it could also be that the ability to actually sense and see those things was what was inherited, and that is why the ghost stuck with that family, or in this case, the banshee. Um, Banshees being unique because they are not exactly a ghost. They're more of the fairy kingdom, but they are certainly equated with a lot of warning ghosts that we see around the world. So there are kind of similarities with that. Uh, ominous appearance of the lady in white who tells mm-hmm. you that you know the little boy down the lane isn't going to make it or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> ends up being. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah uh, that, that's you know, what what you just mentioned is uh, a subject that may be coming up in a, a couple weeks when we do. A, a case study from the Isle of Man, and oh. uh, it's you know uh, roughly in that area, and you know, it's just so, something I have to uh, keep in mind. Um, you know, it's, it's just your information is very, very interesting. You know, uh, okay, now, now that we have moved over into uh, banshees, werewolves, and vampires. Um, <laughs> uh, did, yeah, you have an interesting story by William Butler Yeats in you know, your, your your banshees book, and he makes appearances, uh, a couple appearances in. The Mermaid book, and you know, throughout all all of your, um, you know, the callings of all these, you know, uh, fantastic authors over the years, like Sir Walter Scott, these very notable uh, literary names, all all had an interest in these kind of um, uh, paranormal topics, whether they're you know, mermaids or um, you know, the banshees. Uh, you know, well, you know, uh, th- these topics just never se- seem to have ever died out. They uh, continue to uh, capture people's imaginations on, uh, uh, or do, do some some of these writers uh, really do think that they're real? You have a natural affinity of people who are interested in something like fairy and folklore and um, like artists and writers who have a natural mm-hmm. kind of angels. To ex- yeah, and just but, you know, to imagine things beyond the tangible that you can see in front of you. 
And so I think it makes a lot of sense that someone like William Butler, Butler Yeats, who was traveling around gathering all these folk tales and had this um, intense interest in the, you know, folk stories of Ireland, but also had a, he was a very spiritualist person, you know, very interested in the occult, astrology, um, all these kinds of topics that tend to kind of put somebody in the frame of mind of the belief in another realm that we can't see. And I think poets especially um, are akin are are connected to that realm they have an ability to invoke something with almost no words they can invoke uh, feeling and emotion and that's its own kind of magic so I think that there's this natural connection between the literary arts and the study of um, of ghosts and you you actually have a number of, of, of writers who were perhaps known for other things who dabbled in ghost stories and and or people who were known as writers but not necessarily um as ghost writers who you know everybody at one point especially during the sort of the late victorian turn of the century era when you know seances and things like that were becoming much more commonplace i think you had a, a everybody tried their hand at a little ghost story i mean it's kind of like English literature 101. So, well, okay, now today we're going to study the ghost story and we're going to kind of dabble into this world of, uh, you know, being haunted or the unknown. So I think you do have a natural connection with a lot of the great writers of that time and um, ghosts and and fairies. And, in fact, you know, I, I think you could ask many writers today, they all probably have some kind of ritual and they might not admit it, but there's probably something that they pay homage to when they, you know, start a new work or finish a new work or are stuck. You know, everybody's got their kind of rituals to get over their writer's block. Um, and it doesn't hurt to have some little, little wee folk on your side <laughs> in a situation like that. <laughs> It, it, those uh, uh, you know, uh, examples you gave from the Victorian era, like uh, you know Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol, and the um, uh, you know later uh, Victorian classic uh, Turn of the Screw, or you know, just fa- fantastic examples of the development of that genre and and you know there and you know th- throughout um canon and it and and you know sticking in the the banshee's book you, you do have oh, the Dracula's guest, and uh, we could spend a little bit of time on that one. It, you know, there's there, there's uh, a connecting theme with some that you, you develop or, or at least notes uh, in some some of the uh, works. It, 
are these cold spots? Uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And you know, we have one in the basement uh, that seems to be there from time to time. But mm. yeah, you mentioned uh, you know the uh, uh, cold spot in the uh, paranormal parlor book, and then in the Dracula's guest. Uh, uh, it's what the story said in uh, like May, and the uh, uh, protagonist of the story ends up uh, being stuck in a snowstorm. That's like a variation of a, a cold spot. It, uh, mm. How does yeah, that fit into? Yeah. <laughs> it, but yeah, you keep. Uh, yeah, it, it 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 is a theme that you develop uh, throughout some of your writings. Is, is it, uh, what's the importance of this phenomenon? Wait, you're you really actually read everything? I know. I'm like, wow. I think you might be the first person to ever notice that. Yeah. Well, I was raised to trust my. Um, for a lack of a better way to describe it, I, I, just to trust my witchy instinct. And one of, and you know, so what does that mean? You know, ma, ma, I have no idea what that means. You know, you're 10 years old. So you got to kind of trust that you, you can sense these things. And one of the ways that my mom kind of taught me to understand if there might be a, um, a spirit or, some kind of like you know it was a way it was actually really a coping tool because I would see things and and I would be unsure or I would be you know she's like okay well in order to keep you from being afraid I'm going to give you some tools that will give you the power to understand what's going on at, at least to a you know to a certain degree and one of those things was to you know feel things it's like okay is it hot is it cold can you feel the cold spot now we have heard since time immemorial that a good ghost story sends shivers down your spine, that there's this natural right. response that we have to this sort of chill. Um, and I think it really relates to and why we think that it ha- is connected with ghosts specifically is that I do think that it relates to death and the fact that that time, you know, your body goes cold. It literally goes cold. And that is such mm-hmm. a fascination to us that that can be because until you have seen it or, or, you know, felt it, experienced it, it's very hard to really understand that. And, you know, uh, apart from people who've had near death experiences, most of us are not going to know what death feels like until we're dead. And then it'll be up to like everybody else to try and figure out what that feels like. And it's just this sort of obsession that we have. And I think that that's why, again and again, we have themes that involve, you know, something very, very cold and um, sort of like this impression that the other side is cold because we imagine people cold in their graves. The moonlight is cold. You know, a snowy night is cold. And that is somehow spookier. Um, And I think that also has to do with the time of year that we associate with a lot of the, you know, the veil becoming the thinnest, ghosts kind of gallivanting about more freely. 
when there's more darkness and therefore less sunlight and therefore less warmth. Um, and that is, you know, during the, you know, from basically Halloween through, well, now really it's still pretty cold. Um, and, and, you know, you can see there's a little change in the, in the light at night, but mostly we have these long winter's nights. Now, that being said, there are plenty of accounts of, you know, ghosts in steamy, hot jungles, of course. And there are plenty of people who live in climates that are completely, that don't have, you know, a, a cold snap of a New England evening. Um, but I think that even within that, you can sense this kind of, um, this cold spot. It's like a harbinger. It's its own kind of um it's its own banshee, I guess, to say, like, oh, death is nigh. Something is off here. And you can tell because it's a different temperature than your own body. I, I think that's probably why it works its way into so many different stories and themes. And I do think it's a fundamental theme in a classic ghost story as well. Okay. It, it, and I think the sample that you found of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula's guest, um, I've read Dracula, but I, I, that's really the only thing I've read of his other than the you know, uh, this sample and um, what you mentioned, the uh, what uh, had a quotation from um, uh, one of his shorter works with uh, rats in the title. Oh, the burial of rats. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So terrifying. But, uh, terrifying. That's a short story. Yeah. Okay. Where does this Dracula's guest uh come from because uh, it, it, it's it seems like s- such a really good example of all these different uh, motifs that you've been discussing so well the co- there's kind of a cool backstory between and i also up until you know um when did i write this book like 2000 let me look at the copyright page 2013 <laughs> so i was writing in 2012 sorry um So up until that point, I actually had not read anything else by Bram Stoker other than than Dracula, which I had read, you know, 10, 20 times. And I happened upon this collection that his widow published after his death. And um, I think he died. So it was published in 1914. So I think he died in 1914. 12 or 1913, I I can't remember off the top of my head. And he had this collection of short stories that he did not think were very good and did not think they were fit for publication. And then he wrote Dracula. Dracula was published. And then he really kind of shoved them away because I think that's something that can happen to certain writers. You know, you have this, this monumental work and it's this monumental success. And then you kind of don't know what to do next because you feel all this pressure externally and internally. So anyway, she published, she, she read them 
They were wonderful. I believe she had read them before, and he just did not think they were up to snuff. And she even has this wonderful quote in the introduction to the collection saying, you know, um, she says, had my husband lived longer, he might have seen fit to revise this work, which is mainly from the earlier years of his strenuous life. But as fate has entrusted me to the issuing of it, I consider it fitting and proper to let it go forth practically as it was left by him. And yeah, they maybe weren't as refined as he would have liked, but this story, The Burial of Rats, is totally terrifying. It's this kind of, I, I think it's set in Paris, kind of in a suburb, and this soldier goes wandering through these um, kind of outer barrios of Paris at the time, this was the late 1800s, and it's just a slum, and there's rats everywhere. And it just kind of becomes this descent into madness as he is wandering through these garbage-strewn outer regions of Paris trying to get back to the center and trying to kind of escape from these rats that are following him everywhere. And it's, it's really quite terrifying. And I totally not something I, I completely off my radar. And then this was another story, Dracula's Guest. And, and it's just the complete perfect, um, it, I think it actually might have even been written before he really developed Dracula as a novel. And it's got mm. everything perfect you could ever want in the setting. First of all, it's Walpurgis Nacht, so it is the witch's night. Um, you are, tra- you know, picture it, okay, you're traveling by carriage on this, lonesome hot you know this lonesome road and the you know the wheel breaks and the carriage breaks down and a storm is coming and where can you possibly take refuge there's only one place and it's the cemetery and it's one of the you know the the crypts in the cemetery it's the only place to shelter out the storm and it's like do you even need to know more than that you're pretty much like you're in the (laughs) ultimate the absolute ultimate horror setting and it's just a beautifully of course it's beautifully written because he was an amazing writer and it kind of uh, foretells some of the I don't know if you remember Dracula but Dracula is written um, primarily in letter form going back and forth between yeah Mm -hmm. so there's this is not in letter form this is kind of you know stuck in this place and then um he he finds this letter oh oh and then it breaks down and then he attempts to walk and then the storm hits and then he has to go and and take shelter in this in this tomb where he finds this letter so it's really quite quite a beautiful quite a beautiful story and um just a little little bit lesser known than you know most of his other works but it it's great because it does I love finding things. Sometimes there are things that aren't as popular by popular writers, and you can kind of see why. Maybe they weren't fully developed as writers yet, or, you know, they had a bad editor or something. Um, But somebody like Bram Stoker, who is so incredibly talented, and that's the reason his work endures so much. It's not because he got lucky and somebody made a movie of it. It's because the work itself was so good that it, it it was able to endure and and go cross gener you know for generations and generations we've read this and we've imagined that this Vlad Dracula is a real 
you know, a real person. But it's so fun when you find an old, you know, a, a more obscure story by somebody that you enjoy their writing and then you read it and it just reminds you of what a good writer they are and how, you know, kind of brings you back to that first time you read that of theirs. Yeah. Uh, uh, when you know, you, you know, you're just talking about, you know, finding, um, you know, uh, you know, an excellent, you know, manuscript, like, you know, like this Dracula's Guest. I, I don't know. It could, could have been almost like a prequel or some uh, chapter that is really well done. It, it, it just didn't fit because it, it, it's not like in, 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 you know, like Lucy's Letters, you know, from Dracula. It just, you yeah. Know, like, you know, where are you going for your sources to find, yeah, you know, this sample from Bram Stoker? You know, of course we have to get into it. You know, one of my favorite ones, uh, authors I like talking about is, uh, you know, T. Croft and Croker. Uh, oh yeah. You know, it's like how, how do you find how do you find these? Uh, you know, really well-known. They're they're great stories, but you know, just over time, some of these authors don't have the name recognition, but they have wonderful stories. Do you have an extensive library, or I have an incredibly extensive library. I am a complete book hoarder. I have so many books, and this. uh, Join the club. I don't know, and I don't care i just want more books i just actually get i when i get around books i get that it's almost like a drug addict or something i just sort of start feeling really greedy i have this like inner greed where i (laughs) want them all and there's a bookstore i discovered in a little town not far from where i live that um had when i was writing paranormal parlor i one of the authors that I've always really enjoyed over the years is Elliot O'Donnell and he has written about banshees. Um, I believe he wrote about werewolves to a certain extent. Not a lot about mermaids, but he just a bunch about fairies, tons of ghost stuff and he oh, he's just sort of one of those names that just keeps popping up in, in um, as I'm reading him. So I found an old volume of some of his work at this bookstore, like a real old book, and it wasn't even that expensive. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like Elliot O'Donnell's Book of Ghosts. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it wasn't even behind a locked cupboard or anything. I couldn't believe it. So I I got that, and in that I found a couple of stories that I had never read before. So I would say that usually the way that I start, depending on whatever the topic is, so let's say, you know, I want to write about Banshees. Well, Banshees, they're not that – not a lot of books that are just say, okay, this is about banshees. So I knew the banshee stories that I knew were, for example, William Butler Yeats wrote about banshees, and he wrote about changelings. And I knew this because I had this massive volume from when I was a kid of his Varian folk tales. So I had a copy of that. 
and you'll find, and anyone who has access to any of these old books that perhaps they read when they were, you know, much, much younger, but they've held on to them, or you sneak back into your parents' library and you find, oh, I remember this. When, when you revisit those books, you will find, okay, you're going into it because you want to read this changeling story, but then you find that there's a table of contents, and you're looking at the table of contents, and there's, you know, 10 other authors that, hmm, who, okay, I remember that story. Let me research that author. And I started to find very quickly, because I have a penchant for that sort of, you know, late sort of Victorian era fairy and folklore and ghost stories, turn-of-the-century ghost stories, that's kind of the area that I just gravitate toward in this kind of literature and folklore. I, um, not that I, I mean, I love, I love it all, but that's just where I continue to go back to again and again, especially with a lot of the old Irish stories. And you find that, go back and read the introduction. And in the introduction, not the modern-day introduction, which can sometimes be insightful and sometimes just be like total blow hardery. you'll find in the original author's introduction the mention and often only by initials of other writers and you can start to kind of put the puzzle pieces together so once I am able to you know I'll make like a list of like books that I want to read and or that I want to research and see if they exist. And I use a combination of, um, like, in when I lived in San Francisco, the San Francisco Public Library had this amazing archive of old books that you couldn't actually check them out. They had all these mm-hmm. old reference books and stuff. You couldn't actually check them out, but you could go there and you could sit there, you know, from opening till till closing and, you know, get everything you wanted out of these books and take notes or make notes of books you wanted to look for. That was a big resource for me. And then um, somebody turned me on to Gutenberg, which is a really cool, gutenberg.org, which is a really cool resource. And that is um, like facsimile scans of all of these old books that are in the public domain. Um, and it's this kind of this funky looking site when you go to it, but just, you know, trust me, go to the search bar and type in a word. So you could go to that search bar and you could type in Banshee or you could type in, you know, Angel or whatever you wanted to type in. I was usually typing in Ghost or you you have to be careful. If fairy doesn't really work very well because there are so many things dubbed fairy tales that weren't the kind of things that I was looking for. Um, But that is a way to, one, read very obscure material that might not exist. At your public library or on your own bookshelf, and to again compile another wish list of okay, let me see because it, it's not everything. It's not everything by any given author. It's all run by volunteers, and you got it. You know, so it's this public project. Um, but that can be a great resource to kind of find obscure things or see who else was writing about a topic or just you know just for fun, type in a word that you're researching and, and see, but it's a, it's a rabbit hole because there's a lot of stuff that's going to lead you in the wrong, you know, wrong direction. You'll be going down a hole that you didn't, you know, you're just falling, falling, falling 
reading something totally fascinating that has nothing to do with the topic you were actually researching, and yet you can't stop. So it is like the Internet. It is kind of you have to just shut it down sometimes, um, which is why I like to rely heavily on, on books for my research because it allows me time to think my own thoughts in response to what I read. And it, I don't, whatever, energetically, I don't always have that with the, you know, computer is sort of more like glaring at me out of the corner of the room. And um, the book is welcoming me. Come, <laughs> stay, stay with us. So, um, so I just follow those little Easter eggs all around and over time have kind of gotten a list of authors that I look for and am constantly learning about new authors as well and have found several um, names and read excerpts from like Gutenberg that I was not able to find a lot of information out about the people. And so those are always kind of in the back of my you know, in the back of the notebook, it's like, look, if you ever find anything by this or mention of this person, because people wrote under pseudonyms. So that makes it even more cloak and veil, because now you have people who are being thanked under a name that they didn't even write under because they were known by this other name. And so it kind of just sort of adds to the whole, you know, it's like a, it's like an escape room that you can't can't and don't want to escape from. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and what you're saying about um, collecting books, and I think um, you know the people around uh, Barbara and me uh, keep wanting us to join a twelve step program, and <laughs> we, we, we were. <laughs> I just got rid of 500 books. <laughs> wow. Wow. Was that hard? That, that was, was after hard a, that was after a thousand. <laughs> oh. No, I, okay. had, I I had already I had already read them. Oh, so, so I I have this thing where I can't even like of the of all the books that I have, uh, you know, it's like oh, I want to have a little free library in my yard. And I was like but what am I going to put in it? Because, uh, okay, for every 10 books, I, I have one. Now, I, there are some that I don't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't keep. But I did actually at one point, um, when I was really young, I lost a lot of books and papers that were really important to me. And uh, I think because of that, I'm, I've always kind of, you know, overcompensated by by hoarding old dusty books. <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> well, I just kind yeah. of figure, you know, it's it's good to pass them on so other people can read them too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. That's true. <laughs> uh, and uh, since, since we are speaking about books, um, we might as well give your publisher a little plug as we uh, just pass the halfway point of the show. Yeah, my publisher, Wiser Books, wonderful publisher, wonderful to work with and publisher of many fabulous 
fabulous authors. Um, and all of my books you can find at barlaventura.net. You can find them, you know, wherever books are sold. They're pretty much all in print. And um, you can also find them at wiserbooks.com, of course. Type in Barla Ventura and you'll find them. <laughs> Uh, but I welcome also, you know, correspondence. I believe you can just email me through the website or contact me through Facebook if people have stories that they want to share or if they have, you know, favorite stories that they would like to, um, you know, maybe an old horror story that's your favorite. Um, I always love when people share that information because it seems that I've never – I've never gotten to – every time my book's about to go to print, I learn something that would have been so perfect in that book. So I I know enough to know that I just really scratch the surface when it comes to, you know, things of the uh, folkloric nature for sure. So I love when people tell me, oh, have you read this or anything like that. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, you do have – an interview with uh, Jeff Bellinger on his yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, he interviewed excursion. Me on Ghost Village. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, The Paris yes. Catacombs. Yes. Uh, so one thing that I did with this book, Paranormal Parlor, um, I contacted some people that I had, you know, been befriended over the years just through writing or that, I had always wanted to work with, but hadn't had any way to make that happen. And Jeff was one of them. I've had correspondence with him for years, but never really found a, you know, a way that we would be working together. And I asked him if he would mind um, telling me a ghost story. So what I did with the paranormal parlor kind of started out its core was to kind of explore the spiritualist movement which took place in the United States especially, and other parts of the world, England and parts of Europe, but especially in the United States, it kind of kicked off around 1840 and tapered off around uh, 1920, 1930, and was really at its heyday post-Civil War and late Victorian era, and just really kind of, um, you know, that's when everyday um, people were very interested in the what, what we would think of as the occult um, seances and things of that nature. So that was kind of the core. That's what the paranormal parlor is. That's the step into the you know Victorian parlor and put your hands upon the planchet and we'll um, see what the spirit world has to tell us. And kind of the idea is that not just that you could contact the other side, but that you um, the, the other side had messages for us. That was sort of the fundamental difference between spiritualism and some of the previous, um, you know, scrying and, and different ways of contacting the other side or the gods or the dead. So anyway, um, I had been interested in that topic and sort of how it, especially how it related to women and how women um, sort of found the means to, communicate and break out of the confines of Victorian society by becoming 
poets and, um, you know, stage performers and professional mediums and things like that, that, uh, you know, were basically, you know, industries that were not open to them before. You had very few choices. You could, like, marry someone who was of, you know, wealth or you would marry low or you became a servant or you became a prostitute. You didn't have like a ton of options as a, as a woman. So anyway, um, that was kind of, I started working on that. And as I was doing that, I started thinking about the idea of people having their own experiences. And at what point do you go from researcher to, you know, skeptic to, um, you know, a believer, and how you know how does someone go you know how how does that happen for people and i also have always been fascinated with ghost stories so i'm collecting ghost stories that i love and that i'm writing my own ghost stories and so then i reached out to a few people and said you know would you mind contributing a ghost story and by and large of all all the stories that i got almost everyone said yes they all sent these wonderful stories and actually what i i interviewed them over the phone and had them tell me the story. I wrote the story down. I wrote it up. I sent it back to them, and I said, did I even get this right? And then they could make corrections or whatever. And the reason I did that is because I actually really wanted to have that experience of being told that story firsthand. I I knew that all these people could write, but I wanted to hear them tell me the story and they were all incredible storytellers. And just to be totally selfish, I wanted that experience. I wanted Jeff to tell me his story over the phone and to hear his voice in my ear telling me, you know, set, the, the setting and really taking me because I knew I would really get the story then. And what was really cool is that there kind of, there ended up being this theme where one, the stories fit in really nicely with, um, the the chapters that I had already begun in different ways. I originally thought they were all going to go in one chapter and they ended up going throughout the book because some of them matched other things. And two, by and large, people told me about their first paranormal experience. And I thought that was real cool too, because that fed back into the idea of what is our turning point where we go from, skeptic slash researcher to believer to understand, you know, to be able to understand. And um, with Jeff, he told me the story of the first real and true paranormal experience that he had had. And what was great is it takes place in the, in the Parisian catacombs. And I have been in those catacombs. So as he was telling me the story, I knew exactly what he was talking about is very it's kind of hard to find and you kind of need to ask around and then there's just this little sign on the street and you go in this you know obscure little door and then the next thing you know you're walking through a hallway and it's lined with skulls I mean it's quite intense you, you see pictures of it but then when you're you're in there and and I don't want to give the whole story away but he had this really incredible um, experience of it's kind of the first time he's wandering through these catacombs and he, he um, saw a ghost down there. 
And that was the first time that he knew definitively that he had seen a ghost and there was no way to explain it. And that he had already been a paranormal researcher for a number of years. He had started the website Ghost Village, which he still runs today. Um, That was kind of his turning point from being on one side of it to uh, crossing over. And, and just, that just going back to Elliot O'Donnell, who was someone that I mentioned earlier, one thing that I loved about him is that so many of those Victorian-era authors, were they, they wrote with their own sort of um, agenda, and often that was a Christian agenda. And so mm-hmm. everything was sort of tinged with sin, that what they were witnessing and what they were hearing, what they were telling you about, you mustn't do yourself because it's a sin. And, and also tinged with the idea that these were foolish tales of the, of the you know, uneducated peasantry. But Elliot O'Donnell, he, wasn't, he had had paranormal experiences since he was a kid, and he believed in ghosts. He was not just a bystander reporting on things that other people said. He believed it, and he took a totally different approach to it. And I think it's very evident in his writing, even compared to someone like William Butler Yeats, who had an interest in it, but he still has a little tinge of, um, there's a little snobbery in a lot of the things that he's written. And I don't detect that in Elliot O'Donnell's, because I think that Elliot believed what people were telling him more than some of the other story gatherers believed um and i don't even remember what you asked now <laughs> um i don't i don't you're talking about jeff uh, the uh, jeff Trip. Thing. yeah <laughs> yeah uh, 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 that's uh, uh that's close enough um um it's it, and you know uh, uh, we we haven't really touched on among the mermaids and you know we need to delve into that as well um and you know you know mermaids are usually you know the typical uh image of them is you know like along the rugged irish coast or you know, i guess a lorelei is kind of like a uh uh, mermaid and you know, she'd be in the Rhine River or something like with the pirates in the uh, on the high seas going towards uh, you know the some tropical island you know, yeah those are the most frequent I- images of where you know the mermaids would be seen. But you know, you have a, a really interesting uh, tale set in downtown Baltimore. Like that's a, through a little curve. Yeah, you, through a little curve. Yeah, uh, the Mermaid of Druid Lake. Oh yeah, the Mermaid of Druid Lake. So that's a mermaid that's basically right in a town fountain or like a. You know, it's a it's a public park, and it's a uh, a little sort of pond in the middle of the park, and it's a hilarious story because basically it involves like taking this mermaid for a joyride, 
But you can't take a mermaid for a joyride in your in a regular car, right? Because she's a mermaid. So you have to find a glass. You have to sort of fashion a glass, um, I guess, tank, giant tank jar tank. on the back of your <laughs> you know, tank on the back of your car in order to throw the mermaid in and take her for a ride. And it's just this kind of classic story of this, you know, this guy goes by the lake and then he keeps returning and then he keeps returning, but it's, it's not, it's not on some remote stretch of uh, deserted Island. It's right there in the middle of the city and he keeps returning and finds this uh, finally kind of, I, I think he finally convinces her to come with him on this ride. He says, well, I can't, I can't. So he, he hooks up this, I mean, and it's just this ridiculous description because I think it was probably written in like 1919 or something like that. And so the car mm-hmm. is just, you can just imagine one of those like Ford Model T's with a big glass tank on the back and the guy tosses the mermaid in and uh, they go for, they go for a ride. Of course, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really go well and it's fine for the mermaid, but it doesn't go great for the guy. <laughs> he didn't impress her. <laughs> Okay, but it, it's it, it just shows the diversity of um, settings. Um, you know where authors want to put their mermaid stories. It, it, it I really enjoyed that one, and yeah, you know, I think since we're talking about. Mermaids. Uh, do you think it's time to get into the really creepy mermaid uh, story, the Soul Cages? Yeah, you know, you asked before about um, just sort of how I find these, you know, what, what I use as my sources and things like that. And T. Crofton Croker wrote this, Thomas Crofton Croker wrote this story, The Soul Cages. And I read it when I was in probably third or fourth grade. It was in a collection of, you know, one of those big primers of um, stories that you had to read for English. And I remember reading it and I never, I could never shake it. There was something so disturbing about it to me that when I kind of was talking about the publisher about doing like a, a, to, do, to do the mermaid. I, they said, well, like, what, well, what do you, you know, what do you mean? Like, what's a, what's an example? And, and, um, you know, cause I said, well, I want it to be a combination because with mermaids, especially you have to have some of those classic tales, mm-hmm. <laughs> tales, some of those classic, you know, um, stories about mermaids that, and Hans Christian Anderson in literature, yeah, Hans Christian Anderson, and um, so the, the Soul Cages disturbed me to the point that I never forgot it. So then there I am sitting with this publisher asking this question, and I'm like, it just pops, you know, it's like, well, the right off the top of my head, I think of this story by T. Crofton Croker, in which he takes a man, the the, the king of the marrow takes this man down into the water and he actually doesn't, unlike a lot of the other stories, he doesn't like drown him. He doesn't 
pull him under. He brings him under, but somehow he's able to sort of enchant him so that he can just witness what's going on under the sea. And that is where he finds these soul cages. And these soul cages are lobster traps, which are basically just crates, right? And they're all mm-hmm. at the bottom of the sea, and they're all closed up. And he says, well, what are, what are those? Well, those are soul cages. Well, what's a soul cage? Well, that's where, you know, if somebody drowns at sea, before their soul drifts off, I go and I, you know, I, I capture them and I, I keep them here in the sea. So now this guy, Jack, is like friends with this king of the marrow, and, but all the while he's trying to scheme on how he can open up all of these soul cages without this marrow, like, trying to get him and, and drown him at the same time. And there's a, there's definitely a little Christian overlay there of, you know, the souls needing to be released up into the into the air. But what's happening there also is the story of the idea that mermaids were psychopomps in a way. So the psychopomp is a, a spirit or a, a, an otherworldly creature, a magical being that actually helps people transition from one, from you know, life into the next life, from life into death. So whether it is the person who rows the boat across the river Styx, or it's a mermaid, mm. or you know, can be uh, other things. So thinking of the mermaids as psychopomps, so I started thinking of how you know this guy is keeping the soul cages and he's keeping these um, the souls of these lost sailors essentially and there was kind of a, a an ongoing theme with that because then i interviewed some people who had lived at sea for many years and would say that yes mermaids can be enchanting and there you know it can be something that people feared but it also they had known fishermen who had been guided properly back to shore thanks to the call of the mermaid that the mermaid kept them away from the rock and actually help them. And there are many cultures that leave offerings for mermaids, especially island cultures. Um, they leave offerings. They, they respect the mermaids because the mermaids protect them. So there's kind of this, this vast realm with the mermaids. But with T. Croft and Croker, he had an even creepier story, which I included in the book as well, and that is Flory Cotillion's Funeral. And that is a beautiful, beautiful story in which, you know, a young man is down on the Irish coast, and he may or may not have a fairly decent-sized bottle of whiskey with him as he's sitting, kind of hiding out amongst the rocks on the side of the sea, drinking and looking out at the water. And he sees um, someone had died in the village, Flory Cotillion. And Flory Cotillion had always been rumored to be something a little not quite human about her was there's rumors going back that she had had um you know doings with a with a murrow or some you know a couple a couple generations back so her casket is carried down onto the sea and onto the beach and uh, it had, I think it had been there. It was her funeral. So her, it had been there, and the idea was that, you know, this, uh, the waves would, would lap it up or they would, you know, send it out to sea the next day. 
and he's sitting there drinking alongside the, <laughs> not far from, he's just out of sight from anyone else, but right pretty close to the casket. And these sort of white beings kind of rise up out of the sea and surround the casket and hoist it up and take it out to sea with them. And it's this really haunting and beautiful, you know, dark um, Irish night, um, you know, just a bit of moonlight and these entities and a bottle of whiskey and the sea, you know, it's just got, it's kind of got, got a little of everything in that one. Uh, also by T. Croft and Croker. And so he was a very interesting fella and he had a lot of um, uh, obviously a great interest in some of the old uh, fairy and folk tales, but he had also a very distinct voice and was really an excellent writer. And so whatever he wrote tended to endure because it he would retell these stories in a way that would make sense to the, you know, quote unquote modern audience. And so he's kind of become a classic in that way. But mm-hmm. um he has some pretty dark some pretty dark imagery in his work. It, it is is he is uh, T. Croft and Croker uh, an American author? I believe he's Irish. Irish, okay. Okay, and he also has. If you know the listeners have enjoyed your um, recaps of his. A short story, the you know, mermaid short stories. Uh, he he has what a couple appearances in your fairies, pukas, and changelings. Uh, yes, let's see. Well, he's definitely he's in the mermaid book. Um, has the brewery of eggshells. Two stories of the mermaid book. One story in the. Um, fairies, pukas, and changelings. And I just think he kind of makes an appearance in in um, by mention in the Banshee book, but I don't think I have any of his stories in there. So he may well have written about Banshees. He's a really interesting fellow because one of the things that he and his wife both were very interested in was the practice of... Um, Keening, which is this way of sort of mourning at an Irish funeral and sort of singing in this moany type way, which is very banshee or could could be associated with the with the banshee. And that sometimes mm. people say the banshee cry sounds like Irish keening or somebody at a you know at a funeral or with a great with such a sorrowful loss that they can do nothing but wail. And it's that kind of will that you can't do anything about, and it, you know, just it really rattles you. Um, but he he was very interested in that and many aspects of sort of Irish, early Irish culture. And, um, of course, with that comes all of the fairy and folk tales, um, you know, uh, the mermaids and the changelings and the pukas and and all of that so i don't know off the top of my head if he ever wrote about banshees but i would be very surprised if he didn't because 
I think the connection with Keening probably would would have driven him to be mm-hmm. very interested in that. Uh, uh, that makes sense. And uh, he just gave us um, an, a nice little background on uh, an, an Irish author. Uh, you uh, do include a uh, Japanese author in your uh, Puka's book, uh, Fairies and Puka's book, uh, and her story, uh, The Goblin of Ada Chingahara, is uh, a pretty creepy, uh, another creepy uh, short story. Uh, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about that one? Um, yeah, I think that's one of your center, centerpieces for uh, the Puka's book. Yeah, that's a really interesting and very creepy story that is completely one of those. Um, uh, you, you've probably heard a variation of it at some point in your life, but it's a, it's, it's a classic and yet it's a completely unique story. Mm-hmm. This is a story of a goblin. So I had written about goblins and goblins being sort of a goblin is a loose definition. We often associate goblins with something kind of you know, creepy or maybe a little like uh, ugly and menacing, but there are a number of associations with goblins that are wonderful, like, you know, little hobgoblins that help you out around your house or um, things that somebody calls a goblin, but we might actually look of, look, look at it more like an elf or a, even a leprechaun. Anyway, in this case, a goblin is something you absolutely do not want to run into. It is something that devours humans. And it is the story of a monk who is walking along a road, a mountain road, all alone, of course, tired and hungry, of course, and it's getting dark, of course. And there's no light to be seen except for the distant light of a cottage um, just through the woods. Now, there were legends of this sort of goblin in these high mountains, but this monk was didn't believe them and was a rather trusting man. So now I'm just retelling this story. This is mm-hmm. this is not verbatim. So the monk is tired, hungry, getting dark. That light is beckoning. And he believes that all people are good. So he enters into the woods and he knocks on the door. And after uh, quite a bit of knocking, a little lady answers the door. And she says, what do you want? I have nothing. And he said, I want nothing. I, I really just, I will just lay on the floor and just, you know, maybe eat a scrap of bread. I, I really, I just can't be out on another cold night. And she's, so he, he gets kind of insistent. And after, you she doesn't necessarily want him to come in right away. So she's like, all right, fine, you can come in. I have a little something for you, but I don't have much. And he says, that's anything is fine. I mean, honestly, a, a cup of water and, uh, you know, 
I'll lay here on the floor. I don't even need a, a blanket or anything. Well, you can stay here. I'm going to go get firewood to stoke the fire. But I'm telling you one thing right now. Do not look in that door. Do not open that door in the back of the house. Under no circumstances are you allowed to look in that door. And so, okay, thank you so much. I just so I appreciate so much your hospitality. And he's sitting there, and he's sitting there, and it's getting, it's getting it's getting later and later and later, and time keeps passing, and she's not back yet, and the door is just sort of right there. So of course, what's he gonna do? He's gonna open the door. I mean, this is you know, he's he's a monk, but he he's still a man. So we temptation. <laughs> he just can't resist the temptation. He opens the door, and to his horror, he sees that it is littered human bones, bones of all sizes, femur bones, skulls, finger bones scattered about. And he realizes that he is, this is not a little old lady at all, but this is, in fact, the goblin that he had heard legend of. And he turns around and hightails it out of the house just as she is hunkering back with the wood and at that point because she knows that he knows then she sort of transforms and starts to chase him through the woods and um, I'll let you read it to find out if he escapes <laughs> oh, okay. if he no, that's to tell the tale <laughs> yeah it, 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 it's just it, it, interesting how you, you know, the samples that you present from an international assortment of authors. Yeah, you know, they all, all. It just seems like everyone from around the world enjoys, yeah, you know, ghost stories. Yeah, you know, it started. You know, just sitting around the campfire. You know, being you know little kids and you know, making the s'mores and eating. Eating those and right. tell, tell, yeah, it's it, it just it, and yeah, it, it, it's just fun. It you know, brings back a lot of good memories, and and it, it just you know the example, the Japanese example, Irish, um, you know the uh, you know the Grimm brothers, and it, it, it's really just a lot of fun uh, looking at you know the goblins and hobgoblins and. Yeah, you know, these uh, mermaids. It 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 just uh, it, it, it just a, a the the samples you present in you know, your books are you know, just really well crafted stories from around the globe. Well, thank you. I I really like to find stories that I um, that I'm interested in and. Um, you know, I try, obviously I can't include great lengthy works because mm-hmm. I have a word count that I'm limited to and I want to get some of my own writing in there too. But I try whenever possible to include at least one or two of, you know, my all-time favorite stories um, and in its entirety. So, for example, Dracula's Guest, that I have that whole story is in the book. Um, it's not a really long story. And even in the paranormal parlor, it, 
um, right alongside with um, Jeff's story about the Parisian catacombs, the haunting in the Parisian catacombs, I had a story that I had been wanting to do something with for a number of years. And um, I, I refer to it as a haunting in Paris. But it's this wonderful story that was written by a man named Ralph Adams Cram, who was an architect and really famous for the Gothic revival movement and had this little secret life writing horror stories and wrote this story about going into like his friend's aunt's apartment in Paris and discovering this ritual room. And it's just full of all these beautiful, beautiful details, just very, very um, rich with architectural details. And I read the story and then I found out who he was and it made perfect sense that he had been a, um, an architect. I was like, Oh yeah, that makes sense because he was so specific about the color of the walls and the style of, you know, trim work and um, all of these things that you wouldn't necessarily think of um, that, that uh, you know, unless you're really paying attention and you know the names of these things, you might not think of them. So I, just in finding different stories, I always loved to find things like that that were so, um, I don't know, just so interesting um to find out what their backstory was, like who is the person behind the story. And that was always part of my criteria and choosing what you put in there. But I, I, I like to include things that I like to read. And um, I thank you for, for um, reading them and, and, and appreciating them. That means a lot. Yeah. Oh, it's, um, I, I, you know, you're, you have some interesting ideas. I, I, I do, do enjoy uh, your books and having you as a guest, and hopefully you'll be back soon. Um, and, you know, what we're approaching 20 minutes left, unfortunately. Um, but that means we'll have to do a part two. Uh, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, we do need to leave some a uh, little bit of time for um, the audience to learn about, um, you know, Claremont. But uh, you know, you know, to get you know, a couple little things out of the way, uh, are you working on you know, a, a new project now? Uh, or you know, just in, in between projects, what what are you doing at the moment? I am working on a couple of different projects, but most notably, I've been starting research on um, something I haven't pitched to my publisher yet. <laughs> so I probably shouldn't talk too much about it. But I'm working on a book. I I I think it's going to be pirates. I mean, that's what I'm working mm. on. So I think that would be a nice companion book to um, the Mermaid book, which is one of the most popular books that I've written. And mm-hmm. I, it's a subject I love, I'm very interested in, and I could definitely see it fitting that format of everything from stories to lore 
to places, um, you know, fabulous characters. There's a lot of uh, more obscure pirates that I'd love to bring to light. So um, that's one of the projects that I'm working on. And then there's a couple of others that I'm I'm not going to jinx myself, so I won't mention them. (laughs) Won't say them out loud, but a couple other projects that are real dear to my heart. And uh, other than that, um, yeah, I've just got a lot of, I don't know, just normal everyday stuff and doing interviews about these books and trying to, you know, promote them a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. Doing a lot of traveling, so that's that's exciting. Got some trips coming up. One of them is kind of I'm calling it a research trip. <laughs> I'm going to take a research trip into um, you know the pirate, you know, the kind of the Caribbean. <laughs> I think I think I might be able to find some pirate pirate lore down there on my research trip. So <laughs> okay, um, yeah. Uh... Sounds like any day now would be a good time to go get get out of this cold gray uh, late winter and head down to the Bahamas or Caribbean. Or just even to like California, that would be okay too. <laughs> <laughs> like anywhere, yeah. Anywhere. We'll take anywhere, absolutely. <laughs> Many, 
many a tale has been told over a, a pint at the pub, I'll admit. <laughs> but I think that, you know, some of the most interesting stuff has just kind of come up. Like I have this wonderful um, this wonderful experience where I was in Ireland one time and I was just, I was in Galway and I was just walking. I was like, I don't know where I'm going, but sometimes you just have to walk and let your feet carry you where, mm-hmm. you know, where they want to go and you know, make sure you right. know how to get back to your hotel or whatever. But just sometimes, you know, you just got to kind of see what will happen. Well, very often when I do this, I end up in a cemetery. This happens to me repeatedly when I travel. Like, you know, we got that, that my friend Chris and I called it, you know, it's like our, our, our spidey sense, our, our skeleton spidey sense sort of starts twitching and we just go in that direction and, and there's a there's a cemetery. So lo and behold, I'm wandering through this cemetery, and much like in Dracula's guest, a storm hits, and it's suddenly a torrential Irish downpour. And I take cover in a little sort of open chapel that's in the cemetery because it's pouring rain. I'm equipped for the rain. I have a raincoat and boots and stuff. Well, I better, I, this is a little stronger than I thought, so I better ride this out. And I was just walking around looking at the graves and stuff. And so I'm kind of hiding out in this little chapel thing. It's kind of giving me the creeps a little bit. It doesn't have a door or anything. It's just, you know, it's kind of giving me the creeps a little bit. So I decide, oh, forget it. I'm just going to, I'm going to make a, a dash for it and just, I guess I'm just going to, you know, wander and see if I can find a, a tea shop or something. And so I, I kind of dash out of there and um, there's a little trailer there and there's a couple maintenance guys and cemetery maintenance guys and they throw up in the trailer and they beckon to me. Like, oh, what are you doing? It's so crazy. So they, they come inside and they make me a cup of tea. And the first thing that he says to me, is he, first he says, I can see you like you like cemeteries. And I said, yes. And he said, but why were you hiding in the Protestant side? <laughs> I was like, why were you? Because the cemetery was actually, there was a road in between. And one side was Protestant, one side was Catholic. And I had inadvertently dashed into the Protestant chapel to take cover. I was like, what are you doing in the Protestant side? So I started laughing. And then he said, well, if you like cemeteries, I'm going to tell you where there's some pirates buried. And he gave me these very descriptive directions that had no road names, no, nothing specific like that. It was, you're going to walk and you're going to turn out here and you're going to walk and walk and walk and you're going to walk down until you go under an overpass. And you'll know you're going the right way if you keep the sea on your left. Always keep the sea on your left. And keep walking and you'll find, you know, this, this broken down sort of wall and just beyond that wall you'll find a cemetery and sure enough I listened to this man and he told me about this cemetery and I followed his directions always keeping the sea on my left and I found this graveyard that was so overgrown it was almost almost like under kind of like a freeway overpass but it wasn't quite sort of just the base of like a road very neglected and there were graves in there from the 1600s. And he said some of them were pirate graves. And so that, and I wrote this all down in great detail, you know, 20 years ago when he had told me the story. But that that was probably the greatest example to me of 
what happens when you travel and you listen to what people have to say, you will find, you know, that wasn't in any guidebook. That wasn't even right. on any, you know, any blog about cemeteries. That is, you know, and I, could I find it again? Maybe if I followed my, his directions to the letter, but um, it was just such a cool, such a cool thing. And I learned that in Ireland, you know, everyone's a wonderful storyteller. You get that entire history of Ireland's 32 from your cab driver. So you have to listen. You have to go there and be a good listener because um, you will learn things that aren't in the history books for sure and aren't in the, you know, collections of William Butler Yeats folklore and such. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's a uh, hopefully an inspirational story for uh, people might be doing some traveling over the summer. Um, uh, we have roughly 10 minutes left and, uh, and we need to quickly uh, captivate the audience with Claremont. Um, mm. it's, it, I think that's about yeah, the centerpiece of uh, your vampires and werewolves book. Uh, it, it's really what uh, it's not really in the, it's a long short story but it, mm-hmm. it's really like a lost classic. It, it's really a fantastic uh, 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 novella. Yes, and uh, that is a story that I included in its entirety and actually threw a few things out of the manuscript in order to be able to keep it because I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to just excerpt from it. Um, it's one of the best stories I've ever read and one of the mm-hmm. first vampire stories ever written and certainly, um, you know, beautifully written and incredibly haunting. And um, kind of shocking and riling for the time. Um, right. It, it involves a priest who, at the very moment in which he is about to take his final vows um, and profess the rest of his life and um, uh, labors to God, at that moment, the church door opens and in comes Claremond, a rather unearthly creature uh, who continues to sort of test the priest's ability to be priestly <laughs> um, just by her uh, natural feminine charms. And it's got this really creepy twist, which I hate to give it away, but um, there's a very, very... Um, very dark, dark ending to the story. Um, and it's, it's kind of shocking. And especially when you think of it being, you know, today that wouldn't be so shocking if somebody wrote about the, uh, this. But because this was written so long ago, you think, well, how did that even get published? You know, it's just completely crazy for the, for the times and that sort of, um, you know, 18, 1830s Parisian sensibility, although I, I imagine that was also pretty raucous in its own way. 
but it definitely played. There are a lot of other over under undertones to it that could easily be debated as being commentary on the state of the church at the time. I think for sure. But at its core, it's really the, just a beautiful and incredibly dark love story about, um, you know, the, a priest, what he believes, and this woman who seems to have fallen ill and seems to take the priest by um, some kind of spell. And kind of the whole story is just full of, it's very tense story i don't know if you felt that when you were reading it but i i always i always feel so tense when i'm reading that story mm-hmm. because there's so much tension just in you know his constant resistance to the enchantments of claremont and um it's really i can't emphasize enough how dark it gets <laughs> it's really quite wonderful uh, but it's, yeah. it's a bit shocking <laughs> Yeah, I I I I agree with you. It it really is a uh, excellent example of empiric literature. It, it, it's it, it's worth getting Banshees, uh, Werewolves and Vampires alone just to get that. But you know, you have so many other. Uh, um, Excellent stories in, in the in in those books, but it, you know, really, Claremont stands out as a, a premier example of uh, you know the, uh, vampire uh, you know, vampires in literature. I, I'm I, I'm just really glad you uh, were able to keep the entire work. As it was written in there. Okay. Yeah, you have to read it from beginning to end because I actually hadn't heard of it before I read it. And when I read it, I was shocked. And I read it again and again and again to make sure that I, what I thought had happened had actually happened. And, uh, I just I don't want to give it away because it's really dark. <laughs> so we're just doing it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We don't have to uh, discuss the ending, but it. You know, I think um, I'm sure you put the hooks into, uh, you know, the listeners with, hey, your your yeah the setup of the story. Hey, uh, um, yeah, we're. About five minutes uh, f- from the end. It, um, uh, do you want to plug any of your websites and you know, l- you know last minute things? And just get, give you plenty of time to um, talk about w- where to find your books and do you have any upcoming appearances? Yes, thank you. Um... I yes, my website is varlaventura.net. Um, not .com, .net. I let the .com lapse, and then somebody tried to get me to pay five thousand dollars for it or something. So now we're .net. <laughs> In case you're wondering, 
So some of the old books have the wrong, but you just search my name, Barla Ventura, and it appears on that. Um, uh, it pops right up. Um, I keep on my website, I keep a running tally of upcoming um, uh, radio appearances and um, any public appearances or book signings, which I don't do a lot of those, but um, if they ever come up, they're on there. And um, and then, of course, on my Facebook page, I keep that pretty up-to-date with um, links for shows, especially right before they go live. But mostly I have some radio, you know, I have to, I'd have to check the schedule. Um, but I have a few things coming up through March. And then um, I'm already starting to book in October, if you can believe that already, the, the high holy season. For her. <laughs> it, for magic. Better grab yeah. her quick, Mark. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to have you come back for the Halloween show. Definitely. Uh, and, yeah, and, uh, you know, and people might be able to uh, have you autograph a book on the beach soon. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, I always regretted not doing themed book signings location based so for example you know signing the mermaid book on a on a white sand beach would be lovely but actually i just pulled my thing up so what do i have i know that i'm um barbara right barbara we've yep, got a date right. coming up mm-hmm. and then i think my i've got a few a couple of shows i'm recording that are podcasts that will be released in march and then um yeah, other than that, I don't have too much thus far. You never know. You know, sometimes someone just calls you and you're free. So. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, people can get your books from your publisher? You, yeah, you can buy. I mean, they're available on Amazon. Uh, I believe you can get them all Barnes and Noble, uh, Indie Bound. If you want to shop online, but go the you know independent bookstore route, and I do have all of those links on my website. Um, and then you know actual bookstores. If you're willing to wait, you can get them to order them. And uh, you're you know they're all in print, so you could probably even get your library to stock them. Um, Yep, and so everything's available. And really, if you just go on, you know, something like Amazon, just type in Barla Ventura, you'll see a bunch of books come up. I also have a, a pretty big collection of sort of one-off short um, Kindle-only, you know, e-books that are some of these short stories with introductions. Um, but the print books are all on there as well. And the most recent one is called Barla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor. And uh, that's kind of the one that I that just came out <clears throat> in uh, June of 2018. So we're just not even not even quite done with uh, pushing that one around. <laughs> hey, Mark, okay. you got to start saying good night. You got 15 seconds. Uh, Ooh, th- thank quick. you, Barbara, f- you. Uh, for thank producing you. this. <laughs> uh, th- thank you, Varla. This is wonderful, and we'll see everyone next week. With Maria Wheatley. Absolutely. Good night now. Good night.